Welcome to the HBG Bible Talks podcast, where we do simple, focused reading and discussion from God's Word, the Bible. I'm Stephen. And I'm Chase. We are Bible teachers in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, and we're excited to get into the Word and to share it with others. All right, well, welcome to Season 3 of our podcast. We uh, have finished up the Gospel of Mark and then the Book of Acts, and we've talked a lot about the kingdom in uh, the last couple of kind of post-show episodes of the Book of Acts, and figured it would be good to kind of keep that theme going and talking about the Sermon on the Mount, which is kind of Jesus's kingdom sermon, uh, his introduction to how kingdom citizens are supposed to live and act. Yeah, we've, we've talked about, uh, Stephen talked about it some just a second ago, just how kingdom-focused both the Gospel of Mark and the Book of Acts is. But the one thing both of those lack, specifically the Gospel of Mark, is the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Matthew records that for us in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. And what it will really cover for us is what Jesus is looking for for his citizens of this new kingdom that he has introduced us to. And so we've got a few things we want to say by way of introduction about this. And for starters, I just like to back up a little bit into chapter 4. And one of the things that Jesus it says about Jesus in chapter 4 and verse 17 is that, is that from that time Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Is this, this is actually something we talked about in the Gospel of Mark, in Mark 1. Mm-hmm. This is something John the Baptist is proclaiming, something Jesus is proclaiming. And then in Mark 6, something Jesus will send his disciples off to proclaim. That's right. But whenever you hear that word kingdom, what comes to your mind? Yeah, I mean, I think especially for the people that Jesus was speaking to, they had some pretty specific ideas about what a kingdom would have looked like and what they expected the coming Messiah to do. And most of it was very physical, even military, political things. And what's going to be fascinating about, especially these opening words of the Sermon on the Mount, is as, all right, right, here comes the kingdom, here comes the king. And he's going to open with, blessed are the poor (laughs) in spirit, the mourning, the meek and gentle. Wait, what? What kind of kingdom is this? Yeah, (laughs) exactly. Yeah, these characteristics aren't exactly what we would have guessed them to have been from this, what we might think would have been a military leader. But again, he's not a military leader. He, He is leading a charge for people to change their hearts, to repent, right? As mm-hmm. we talked about. Um, that's what he's trying to get them to realize and get them to do. And uh, this is an important thing to see. As we think about Jesus in Matthew 4, uh, being baptized, being tempted, the Spirit of the Lord, of God, descending on him like a dove, and just thinking about maybe the inauguration of King Jesus well, whenever we have an inauguration, when a president is elected, he has his opening speech, and this is not a perfect parallel. But that's kind of what Matthew 5 is for Jesus. He, he, is, he is now this king, he has come into his land, and he is going to have his opening speech for those who want to be a part of his kingdom, who want to be citizens of it. And let me just say, this speech, if you've never read it before, it is probably nothing like you expected it to be. Uh, There's a couple of different quotes I want to read that I think sum up this sermon or speech that Jesus gives in these chapters. The first quote is by a guy named Sewell Hall. This is in a foreword to the book called Invitation to a Spiritual Revolution. This is what this guy says. He said, generally speaking, our generation has an aversion to authority. 
Yet those who heard the Lord's sermon, uh, great sermon observed that he taught them as one having authority. We prefer sermons that deal in generalities. Jesus dealt with specifics. We prefer preachers who praise rather than condemn. Jesus condemned not only wrong conduct, but wrong motives as well. We object to name-calling. Well, Jesus unabashedly named unfavorably the leading religious party of his day. We favor motivation by promise of rewards, but Jesus, while offering rewards, did not hesitate to threaten hellfire. Our society seeks instant gratification, while the promises of Jesus are primarily for life hereafter. We tend to think of everything as relative, but Jesus spoke in absolutes. We criticize as simplistic any preaching that makes everything black and white. Yet, Jesus repeatedly divided his subjects into just two categories, right and wrong. We applaud broad-mindedness and seek the easy way, but Jesus warned that his way is narrow and the gate is difficult. Wow, just a really helpful quote, I think, to sum up what this sermon will be about. Jesus is, is nothing like you expect him to be. A little bit later in that same book, the actual author, Paul Earnhardt, he says, Jesus' discourse upon a Galilean mountainside is in reality no mere sermon. It more approximates a manifesto of the kingdom of God. There's more to Jesus' teaching than this, but here we feel the very heartbeat of kingdom truth, and we will neglect it at our own peril. Hmm. That's helpful. Yeah, it's cool stuff. And and as we think about it, I, I like that phrase you use like a manifesto of the kingdom it's interesting that in the gospel of matthew matthew has kind of set it up that way um, using old testament pictures kind of built into the story leading up to the sermon on the mount matthew has recorded the early life of jesus as he had to flee to egypt to escape herod and now he's come out of egypt just like israel did Um, He's been baptized, just like Israel went through the Red Sea. He's gone out into the wilderness for 40 days, just like Israel was in the wilderness for 40 years. And now, chapter 5, Jesus goes up on a mountain to deliver this, you might call it a new covenant inauguration, or like a, just like Moses went up on Mount Sinai, to get the Ten Commandments and the law, this this covenant, that's where God entered into a covenant relationship with Israel. Well, now Jesus is the new Moses. Yeah. He, he's the one going up on the mountain and delivering, not just receiving, but like he's the one with authority. He's the one giving this covenant language and saying, yeah. if you want to be part of the kingdom of heaven, here's how you have to be. Here is the law. And it's really powerful to see how Matthew introduces that mm-hmm. against this Old Testament background that would have been very significant to his readers and is significant to us as students of the Bible, is this is New Covenant language. And so we should uh, pay close attention to this, this sermon. Yeah. And if I can just kind of start where it ends, in, in, Ma- excuse me, in Matthew chapter 7, one of the things Jesus will end this great sermon on is kind of this parable uh, about this guy who builds his house on a rock, and this guy who builds his house on the sand, the foolish and the wise man. And it's the wise man who built his house on the rock when the rain fell, floods came, winds blew, slammed against the house, and his house did not fall. And Jesus says, that guy, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them, he's going to be like the foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, floods came, winds blew, slammed against that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. Basically, Jesus ends his sermon by saying, don't just listen, 
but do. You have to be doers of the word. That is what will prove you to be wise, is to live out these words that you've just heard. And so as we go through this season, we need to remember that. That this isn't just head knowledge. This isn't just stuff we that's helpful to know. Um, we need to live it out. Because there have been people throughout the generations who have gone to this speech that Jesus Christ gave and said, wow, if everyone would live by this, it would be an amazing world. You know, And they just almost look at it as just a self-help book. Mm-hmm. And that's it. These are things Jesus is calling us to live by because he is the king. And we need to understand that. And so I hope and pray that you will take these things seriously. And I pray that you'll also pray for me and Stephen that we'll take this call seriously as well. Yeah, amen. Well, let's let's read. Um, we're going to do Matthew 5. We're just going to read the first five verses today and talk about the first three characteristics of kingdom citizens. Matthew 5, verses 1 through 5. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Seeing the crowds... He went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. So like we've mentioned before, uh, this would have been pretty shocking for the first hearers of the sermon to think, all right, here's our king, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, blessed are the tough, (laughs) blessed are the, you know, I mean, he's going to say, blessed are those who are persecuted, but man, uh, not what we would have expected if we were listening to Jesus. Yeah, I'll tell you something else I wouldn't have expected. As you think about Jesus kind of coming in to give this speech on a mountain, I would expect him to be standing up and kind of waving his hands and giving this big, you know, boisterous speech. <laughs> but in verse 1, it tells us, after he sat down and his disciples came to him, mm-hmm. he opened his mouth and began to teach. His posture is sitting down, which is already so just the humility of your leader that that's what he's doing as he sits down. It's just, again, not what I would have envisioned was happening in this moment. Um, but Stephen's exactly right. His opening words are, blessed are the poor in spirit. Now, we'll mention there's going to be kind of eight blesseds here as we go. And that's what we commonly refer to as the Beatitudes. Mm-hmm. And when I was growing up and until I was like a teenager, I always thought Beatitude, we call them that because like, these are attitudes that you need to be. And then, you know, that's really not a bad way to think of <laughs> yeah, it. It's not terrible. No, it's not bad. It's not everything it is. Stephen, why do we call them the Beatitudes? Yeah, so it comes from uh, the Latin word for blessed. Right. Uh, because that's the word that comes up over and over again here. And so that's just kind of the historical title that's been attached to the Beatitudes. Which, I mean, any time you have a statement that says, blessed are the ones who do this... Like there's other beatitudes than just these eight. It's just a word for it. This is a blessing statement. Jesus is saying, blessed. And some translations have like happy or fortunate or favored. It's just the idea of the God looks with joyfulness and, and happiness and favor on those with these character qualities. This is the kind of heart that God is looking for in the citizens of his kingdom of his people. Um, and so he starts with, blessed are the poor in spirit. 
it's a pretty interesting way for him to start. The poor, but not just poor, but poor in spirit. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that word spirit might be odd at first because that word is actually used a few different times in the Bible. Mm -hmm. And um, I think about John 3, 8, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the spirit. Well, that word wind and spirit are both the same Greek word in John 3, 8. And then in Luke 1, 80, it says, and the child continued to grow and become strong in spirit. And he lived in the deserts until the day of his public appearance to Israel. So in that instance, this child is strong in his own personal spirit. It's not talking so much as the spirit of God, but one's own spirit. And I really do think that's more so the idea that he has in mind here is being poor in our own spirit or our own maybe demeanor might be a helpful way to put that. Mm -hmm. Stephen, do you think there's any other like Bible illustrations or Bible parables that kind of help us understand that idea? Well, one that... I think about sometimes is the parable that Jesus told in Luke 18 about the Pharisee and the tax collector. And I think this really illustrates the idea of what it means to be poor in spirit. It's really like our demeanor, our mindset, our heart, when we approach God. And this uh, parable is one of the things where Jesus he calls a contrast. He says, here's two men, and look at their demeanor. Look at what it says about them. I'm just going to read this in Luke 18, in uh, verse 9, beginning. Uh, Luke 18, verse 9. He told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray one a Pharisee, and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. I really do think that the, the core idea of being poor in spirit is humility. Mm -hmm. And this parable of Jesus really gets at the heart of, I think, the idea of being poor in spirit is that when we come to God, we have to realize that we are spiritually bankrupt, that we got empty pockets. We're not coming to God with some great thing to offer him. It's not like, oh, God, you're lucky to have me. You know, like, look at what I've done for you. Look at what I can do. And that's what that's what the Pharisees bringing is like God. I think I'm I'm not like those guys, you know, or even this specific guy, this tax collector. Look at all that I do. Look at my I'm bringing you great wealth. It's like we have to realize that when we come to God, we are beggars spiritually. We are charity cases. We are totally dependent on the goodwill of God to have mercy. On us, And that's the prayer of the tax collector. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Mm -hmm. And that, that, I think, really gets at the heart of what this means to be poor in right. spirit. Yeah. 
And I think a contrast to that, just one other example, would be David, the king, back in 2 Samuel. Uh, David was doing some great things early in 2 Samuel. He was a fantastic military leader. In fact, kind of building up to the ultimate sin or one of the sins he has with Bathsheba. In 2 Samuel 10, he was accomplishing some great things in the kingdom. Um, was a great military leader, was doing awesome. And you almost see David kind of becoming puffed up and, and you know arrogant in his own spirit. Because when you get to 2 Samuel 11, all the other kings go out to battle and David stays at home and he's getting up in the middle of the day. And as he gets up in the middle of the day, he goes out on his rooftop and he looks over and he sees a woman bathing. And he feels entitled. He he's asks who that woman is and they tell her she's Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. And he says, well, bring her to me. And they bring her to him and he ends up having an affair with her. She ends up getting pregnant and he ends up trying to cover it up by bringing her husband back from war and trying to make her husband go and be with his wife, but her husband won't do it. So in a long, long story short, David ends up having Uriah killed in a very deceitful way so that he can cover it up, marry Bathsheba. And um, he's trying to cover up his sin is what he's trying to do. And finally, Nathan, uh, a prophet of God, comes to David and in a roundabout way tells David, God knows what you've done, and I know what you've done. And David says he has sinned. And so he has been puffed up all the way up into this point, And now he has to be popped. <laughs> Someone needs to humble him. And that's what Nathan was there to do. Well, David writes a psalm shortly after that experience. And I want you to listen to what David says after he, his sin has been confronted and he's finally been popped. He says, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and a contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. That is where David was in that moment. He was finally poor in spirit, and he was saying, That is what God desires. That God cannot despise, because that's who God can work with. And so, in the case of the tax collector that we read in Luke 18, and in David's case, after he's been confronted with his sin, that's the type of poor in spirit that Jesus is saying he's looking for. Yeah. You know why? Because that's who he can work with. Mm -hmm. That's the type of person that will be willing to listen and make changes in their lives to be more in line with what the king wants them to be. Yeah, I really like that way you put that. This, that this is who God can work with. Yeah. It's like step one, if you want to be a kingdom citizen, you got to realize that you are totally in need yeah. of the Lord and what the forgiveness that he offers, the direction that he offers. If we come to God with any kind of pride, yeah. then we're not going to really listen. We're going to maybe submit when we agree with God. And that's the way a lot of people approach God is like, well, I like some of the stuff God says, but some of that stuff, man, I mean, that gets pretty extreme. Like, I'm pretty sure that doesn't really apply to me. And like, that's not poor in spirit. Yeah. We all have to humble ourselves yeah. and realize, man, like I... I am foolish, I am sinful, and I do not know how to how to direct my own life. I need the Lord. There's a friend of ours who, when he teaches through this section, he likes talking about how high school teams and you know different atmospheres, you know, they, they love to chant, "We're number one, we're number one." And sometimes that mentality gets it gets rolled over into your own personal life, where you're walking through life saying, "I'm number one, I'm number one." And Jesus call that school spirit, right? right? That's yeah. the idea. 
Jesus starts off by saying, yeah, uh, you have to realize you're not number one, okay? Like that, that can't be the case when you come to work in my kingdom and be a part of this. You're not number one. That's step one. Yeah. Be poor in spirit. Be humble. And uh, Stephen, that really kind of leads well into the next beatitude as well, doesn't it? Yeah. Uh, verse 4 of Matthew 5 says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And again, this is almost a, a paradox when you read it. If blessed means, you know, fortunate or happy or favored, you know, happy are the sad. <laughs> it's almost the way this reads. And I think this gets back to, you know, that heart of David that you mentioned uh, in the first one, that David was mourning his sin. Because the question is, you know, like, well, what? Blessed are those who mourn over right. what? Because, I mean, people mourn all kinds of things. Yeah, people exactly. can mourn the fact that they got caught. They can be mourning any number of things. Well, it's not just sad people are inherently favored. But what kind of mourning are we talking about? Yeah, because I, I just thought about this. Later in Matthew 19 with the rich young ruler, this is a guy that Jesus told him he needs to go sell everything that he has and follow Jesus in order to inherit eternal life. And the way that story ends, it says, the young man, when he heard this statement, he went away grieving or mourning, for he was one who owned much property. Okay, well, he's mourning. Is he going to be comforted? No. No. Because his mourning is over, oh, man, I got to give my stuff up? Right, exactly. And he's not willing to. Yeah, so exactly. He's, he's sad, but he's not willing to, to change. Yeah, but you, you, I mean, your point is well made that it's not just that type of mourning, but is it? more than or is it more so just mourning over your sin is the idea that jesus is talking about here mm-hmm. and so there's a really helpful passage in second corinthians 7 that i'd like to read that kind of illustrates two types of sorrow uh, two types of mourning and uh, this is just really a really helpful conversation as we think about what does jesus mean what kind of mourning is blessed um 2 Corinthians 7, a little bit of context is Paul has had to write a really hard letter to the Christians in Corinth, and it has made them grieve. And Paul is grateful in this chapter because he's like, he heard that the letter made them sad. And he's not, he's not just trying to be mean to them. He's not just trying to like, well, I'm glad you cried about it. No, he's saying... I'm really glad that the kind of grief you felt was a godly grief that led you to repentance. So we're going to read this in 2 Corinthians 7. I will pick up in uh, verse 8 and read down through uh, verse 11. Uh, This is, again, 2 Corinthians 7, verse 8. Paul writes, For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves What indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you've proved yourselves innocent in the matter. 
I mean, we could do like a whole podcast probably just on this right here, but yeah, you know, because this idea of being comforted too is like you said, a theme throughout second Corinthians again in chapter one, especially. Yeah. And so if we think about like, what's really the difference between godly grief and worldly grief in this context? Yeah, so somebody who has a worldly grief, they're going to be sorry, but they're really not going to change what they're doing. And that that doesn't really help anything, does it? Mm-hmm. It doesn't change the root of the problem at all. Well, it's like the rich young ruler who, you know, heard you got to give up your, your possessions, and he was sad, but it didn't lead him to repentance. And sometimes I think also is like if someone is confronted with their sin or confronted with their selfishness, why are they sad? Are they sad because of what they have to give up? Or are they sad because they see their heart and that they need to change? Uh, when, when you get confronted, are you sad because you got caught? Or are you sad because you've sinned? And again, coming back to Psalm 51, like David says, against you, you only have I sinned. Like... Are we sad and we start making excuses <laughs> or are we sad and we just come to God and say, God, I've, I've totally messed up. I've totally rebelled. What can I do to make this right? Mm-hmm. And that heart, that heart that is mourning sin, is mourning their separation from God. Again, that's the kind of heart that God can work with. Mm-hmm. Is someone who's been broken down and a broken and contrite heart. Right. That's well, ready to change. And there's comfort there for that heart because God can forgive those who mourn their sin. Again, because that's who God can work with. God will forgive those who are mournful over their sin, which is just obviously such a huge blessing. Um, and that's the thing we need to remember here is that it's not just mourning in general, but mourning our sin to the point of repentance. And we got to take practical steps there. But the Lord, he's always willing to forgive those who are willing to repent and are willing to come to him and ask him for forgiveness. Yeah. And so that's who God is here to work with. And, you know, we didn't focus on this a whole lot, but with each of these beatitudes, there's kind of a format that it goes through. You got like, blessed are the blank for blank. You know, there's a... There's a a reward. There's a reward with each of these. And we didn't talk so much in the first one about blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Mm -hmm. And again... Citizens of a kingdom, you think they're the ones who conquer, they're the ones who are strong and powerful. And he says, no, like, it's the poor in spirit who are going to be given the kingdom. God is the one who will grant them the kingdom of heaven. Uh, They're the ones who are going to be with God in in the kingdom. And here, you've already mentioned the blessing of comfort. It's like, if you really want comfort, because, I mean, who doesn't want comfort? But we seek for comfort in all the wrong places, Mm -hmm. and we think we've got to seize it for ourselves. He says... If you want to be comforted, you actually have to start by being afflicted. Right. You have to start by mourning. And when we come to grips with our sin and are willing to be humble about that, it's going through that that will actually lead us to the comfort of God's forgiveness, of his giving us a purpose again, giving us a life again. Um, But we have to be willing to be broken down in order to be built back up. Yeah, great way to put that. So leading into the third one here, uh, blessed are the gentle, this is in verse 5, for they shall inherit the earth. Mine says, blessed are the meek. Okay, yeah, that's a helpful synonym there. 
Um, and so blessed are the gentle. And uh, the, just from the beginning, how, how does the world, generally speaking, view gentle people? Hmm. Well, I've heard it said this way about meekness as well. As meekness, people think it's weakness. Yes. Yeah. Uh, wimp. You're such a wimp. Like, why are you so gentle? Like, no. What, if you want to get anywhere in this world, you just got to push your way through. You just got you just got to, you know, take this world by the throat and get what you want out of it. And to a degree, I, I kind of understand that mentality as far as being a driven person and being confident in your skill and your ability. But really, I'm just sugarcoating what arrogance is. But th- that's why this is just so contrary to what we would think. The world... They are not full of gentlemen. Um, and I hate the word gentlemen, not because of what it really means, but because of the way that it's used now. Like, nobody understands what it means to be a gentleman. And yet, that's exactly what Jesus is calling men and women to be, gentlemen and gentlewomen. And uh, so, Stephen, what do you think about this idea? Well, it's really interesting to me that uh, in the Old Testament, Moses is called the meekest man huh. who ever lived. That's a good point. Lived. And when you look at the example of Moses, again, we could do a whole show just on that, it is Moses, he starts out humble because God kind of has to break him. Uh, he thinks that he's going to s- save his people, so he kills the Egyptian. But then <laughs> that backfires and they find out about it. His own people don't want him to save them. And so he spends 40 years out in the wilderness as a shepherd. Mm-hmm. And so when God does call him, he's like making all these excuses. He's like, Lord, send somebody else. But then God uses Moses to stand up to the most powerful man in the world at the time, Mm -hmm. Pharaoh. Let my people go. And by the time they get out into the wilderness, Moses has become a powerful leader, but he's meek. He doesn't let that go to his head. And over and over again, he deals gently with the people of Israel who are accusing him, saying, why'd you bring us out here to die in the wilderness? And he could have, I mean, there's even times where God gives him an opportunity where God says, all right, Moses, I am tired of this. I'm done with this people. Let's just start over with you. And if there had been pride or arrogance or self-will in Moses, he would have just been like, sounds sure. good, Lord, let's do it. <laughs> but Moses over and over again says, Lord, don't, don't do this to this people, you know, for the sake of your name and your reputation. Don't destroy this people that you've rescued from Egypt. In fact, at one point he says, blot me out of your book if you won't forgive this people. He lays himself down. And even though the people are mistreating Moses himself, like that spirit of meekness, of gentleness, is just so present in Moses. It's not because he's not a fiery guy sometimes. I mean, there's... Actually, he's going to end up not going into the promised land because of an outburst of anger. But sometimes I've heard meekness described as strength under control. Um, that's helpful. And th- that, I think, is is a helpful way to think about this. And that's true with gentleness as well. Gentleness doesn't mean you're not strong. Mm-hmm. But it means you're not just going to use that strength selfishly. Yeah. And certainly something we saw in Moses. Certainly something we see in Jesus as well. I mean, that to me is one of the things that impresses me the most about the cross is Jesus's ability to restrain himself in a moment where I think all of us would want to use our power to get out of that situation. Mm -hmm. But in that situation, you see Jesus is gentle and he is meek. 
um, and allows those things to happen to him. He, like, he's restrained. Like a lamb led to the slaughter. Exactly. Open not his mouth. So, Stephen, what I find really interesting to this one is not only the idea of blessed are the gentle, but the reward on this one is interesting. It says they shall inherit the earth. Mm-hmm. And I'll just point out another way we could read that is they shall inherit the land. Mm-hmm. Back in chapter 4 and verse 15, uh, it's a quote from Isaiah, but it says the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. The, that word land is the same word that's being used in chapter 5, verse 5 for earth. So you could read that as they shall inherit the land. And for an Old Testament student, that kind of invokes some thoughts about an old passage, doesn't it? Yeah, this is the only one of the Beatitudes that is a almost direct quotation from the Old Testament. Um, he's quoting from Psalm 37 and verse 11 on this one. And Psalm 37 is a, a wisdom psalm that talks a lot about the righteous and the wicked. It sounds a lot like the book of Proverbs, actually, these wisdom psalms do. And um, it's pretty interesting. So he's quoting from verse 11. In the days of David, by the way, that this psalm yep. is taking place. The psalm of David. So, so they're already in the land that God has promised. They're dwelling in it. David's ruling in it. Yeah. But just to give you kind of a, a flavor of this, I'm going to read Psalm 37 verses 9 through 11. Uh, psalm 37, 9 says, For the evildoer shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. And that's where Jesus is quoting from. The meek shall inherit the land. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the land. Yeah, and it's cool too because in verse 22 of the same psalm, it says, For those blessed by him will inherit the land, but those cursed by him will be cut off. So you get your blessed in there again, which is cool. Yeah, so there's a bunch of verses in Psalm 37 that talk about inheriting the land. I think that especially if we think about the Old Testament picture of that, is that was one of the big promises like that God promised originally to Abraham and said, if you're going to be, if you trust me, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to lead you to the land of promise. And you're going to inherit that land. And that idea of inheritance is a really important idea in the Old Testament, like, Inheritance in our day and age, I feel like, is as big of a deal as it was to them. That, like, this is what your fathers have left to you. And it's your part in, like, participating in those promises. Like, hey, we are God's people, so we get the land that God promised to our forefather, Abraham. And so thinking of, of, like, getting an inheritance from God is, like, this idea of participating in the blessings of his promise. Right. Like... God's good promises. I get to inherit that. Right. Like, thank God. And it's nothing that I worked for. It's nothing that I made. And it's really nothing that I deserve, but it's by his mercy and his grace that he's going to give this to me. Now, there are conditions to the covenant. We, Stephen made that point really well at the beginning of the podcast. That these same people that David is talking about and David himself are a part of this covenant that was made all the way back in Deuteronomy that was um, crucial for them to follow their end of the deal to keep the land. And so they need to continue walking in the ways of the Lord to receive the land. But of course, here we're, we're living in, in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania in 2020. It is the same land that David had in mind, the land that Jesus has in mind for us in Matthew chapter 5? I don't think so. I think it's a, it's a greater land that the Lord has prepared for us. Maybe the land that's being discussed in Hebrews 3 and in Hebrews 4. Uh, the, the land of promise, the rest that God has in store for us is is heaven to be our home one day. And 
We got to be gentle to get there. And it's just so funny when you think about that. When you think about someone being gentle to enter a land, it's like, no, if, if you want to take a land, man, you got to be strong. You got to go there and take it yourself. But Jesus is saying to inherit this land, it takes meekness and gentleness to inherit it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is a, these first three of the Beatitudes really go together really well. The, the poor in spirit, those who mourn, uh, the meek and gentle. Not what you would have expected Jesus to start out with when he talks about the character of his citizens. But again, this is the starting point. If we're going to be disciples of Jesus and citizens of his kingdom, we've got to get rid of our pride. We've got to humble ourselves and be willing to bow the knee to King Jesus, and then he can work with us. Yeah, that's exactly right. One other passage that comes to mind here is when Jesus is calling us to be humble and gentle, He's calling us as someone who is also humble and gentle himself. In Matthew 11 and 28, he says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Yeah, that's a great tie-in. Yeah, it's super cool. Jesus always brings things full circle, it feels like. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, um, Lord willing, next week we're going to continue along the Beatitudes, um, these blessed are statements, and we'll talk about the next three. Uh, So we'll talk about Matthew 5, verses 6, 7, and 8. So Lord willing, we'll jump into that next week. Yeah. Thank you guys for listening today. Uh, If you're enjoying what you hear on the podcast, do please subscribe. Uh, Leave us a rating or a review. If you'd like to study like this with us, uh, we would love to hear from you, uh, 717-585-0949, or email us at uh, capitalcitychristians at gmail.com, or for more information, check out our website at capitalcitychristians.com. Thanks so much for listening.